Well, here in John 17, we, we've got the Lord's prayer to, to his Father. And I was reminded of John 17 quite recently when I was with someone and their wife called them on their, uh, on their cell phone and they started to, this person started to have a very personal conversation with, uh, with his wife. And um, it was very, very personal. And I... I thought, well, I shouldn't really be here. I should just uh, go out of the door and uh, just leave these two to have a private conversation. And I felt just very inappropriate and just awkward sitting there listening to this guy talking very personally and intimately to, to his wife. And I sort of, oddly enough, I thought, yeah, John 17, because this is how we feel here, I think, really, seeing Jesus talking so intimately to his father. And yet it's there uh, for us to think about. It's a window into this very personal and, and amazing relationship which the Lord had with, with his Father. And why have we got it there? Well, I think the prayer itself explains why we have this very unusual and unique window into their relationship. It's because, he says, that basically the relationship that he has with the Father, we also are to have with the Father, and that he was going to die so that the intimacy, the unity that he had with the Father, we also could have. Now, incidentally, you can split up John 17 into three distinct units, from verses 1 to 8, 9 to 19, 20 to 26. And those three units are pretty well the three units that you've got in, in the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father. You've got the same themes there for the Father's name to be glorified for his work or his will to be done or finished, uh, deliverance from the evil one, uh, etc. And I, I leave you maybe to, to work that out at some time because that is one key to trying to understand his, his meaning here. The other comment I, I would make is that he seems to speak here as if it's all done, as if the cross that was looming in front of him and the glorification that would come as a result of that had already happened. To such an extent is that so that there's even been the suggestion made by Harry Whitaker that actually this has been displaced and that this prayer is actually after uh, the, the crucifixion and resurrection. I don't accept that. I think that it's clearly before his death and it's in line with <clears throat> how he often speaks in John about his being already glorified, his being already uh, Lord and Saviour of all when in fact he still hadn't actually died. That, I think, is a, an essay, really, for us in faith, in the faith that sees that which is not yet, as if it actually is, and feeling, as if it has happened. So he says <clears throat> uh, here, verse 3, that this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And I, I feel I better just clear up what is a very common misunderstanding of that verse. Uh, the misunderstanding is that if you want eternal life, then you've got to know the truth about God and Jesus right now. And if you intellectually, theologically grasp uh, a set of true propositions, therefore you have eternal life. Now that's not what it says, and even if we want to take it that way, 
there's no guarantee at all that if you know the true propositions, therefore you have eternal life. Eternal life is not the reward for getting it all right in your Bible study. That would be to sort of make eternity and salvation a function of our ability to, to get it, and our ability to meet the right people who might explain the truth to us. That's not what it's saying. He's defining what is life eternal. He's saying that the life eternal is that we might know, and it's a continuous tense there, grow to know the only true God and Jesus Christ. So eternity is about growing to know, knowing in this continuous tense the Father and Son. And that is why earlier in John he can talk about how we have eternal life. In the sense that we are growing in relationship with the Father and Son right now. So the point is we can live the kind of life which we will eternally live right now. Of course we shall die. And yet we have the eternal life in the sense that we can start to live it right now. And that is both an encouraging and a challenging thought because it follows from that that there is not such a big disconnect between our life and experience now and that which we shall eternally have. In other words, when Jesus comes, yes, there will be a change of nature, but the essential relationship that we have with the Father, we have now. That relationship which we will eternally have. And so the question is, do you know the Father and Son? That's the issue. Uh, because we are beginning now the kind of life which we will eternally live. Hosea 6, 2 and 3 in the Septuagint says this, We shall rise, and I take that rise from the dead, and live in his presence, and have knowledge. We shall press forward to know the Lord. Now that, I think, is the same idea, that at the resurrection we shall live eternally in his presence and have knowledge, and shall press forward in that knowledge. That, I, I think, is beautiful, because it shows that we will not, in that sense, just be you know, thrilled and elated when we're allowed into the kingdom, and then, like many good experiences in this life, it sort of peaks, and then it sort of goes down to a kind of a mediocrity. But no, the life eternal is about having God's nature, which is spirit, which is dynamic. God is active, God is moving forward, and that is what our eternity will be like, an eternal growth. And in fact, if it was any other way, eternity would, I can't quite think of the word, but something to the effect it would be boring, um, we would sort of be stuck on one level. So the eternity of the life is one thing, but of course the quality of the life that we are related to is another, and that the best will always be ahead, that we will continue growing and growing and growing in this amazing relationship with the infinite Father and Son. Because God is infinite, to know Him is therefore infinite. Just take a thought for all that as you struggle in your life, as you do, as we all do right now, and see that that is the future that is ahead. Not only an eternity of life in a sort of chronological time sense, but an eternal growth. An eternal growth in, 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 in relationship with the Father that gets better and better and better. 
It's so hard to relate to, I suppose, because in all our human relationships, we tend to grow in relationship with somebody, and then we get to know them, or we think we do, and they get to know us, or they think they do, and the relationship sort of simmers down to mediocrity. And this is so sad, and yet it is, I think, just part of the human condition. And yet it's how it is, and yet the relationship that we can have with the Father is so different, and it will eternally be so different. Because in the end, this is what we all hunger for, relationship. And only ultimately will we find it in, in the Lord Jesus. You can meet people who have been through multiple relationships in their lives, stuck with somebody for a year or five years, even ten years, and then, ah, uh, yeah, it all got stale, and they're on to somebody else, and, ah, oh, this is it, this is wonderful. And then that also uh, fades away, and then it's somebody else, and they come to the end of their days still searching and hungering for relationship. That hunger for relationship, I would submit, is wired into us. And yet it is only ultimately met in this eternal, ongoing, continuous tense knowing of the Father and Son. That is the light that is ahead, uh, if, if you like, uh, of the tunnel. And yet we're also beginning that process right now. Now in 20 minutes I can only just touch on a few themes from these wonderful things we've got here in John 17, but um, this prayer has been called the, the, the prayer of intercession, the high priestly prayer, and it's spoken of like that because of the way Jesus talks about how he is sanctifying himself. And the idea of sanctifying yourself was of course what the, the high priest did. He sanctified himself and then he went in to uh, mediate for the people in the presence of God himself. And so, Jesus here is in a sense mediating for us before the presence of God, and he does that right now. But we have in this chapter a unique insight into how he actually does that. Now, he's very positive about the disciples in front of God. He says in verse 6, They have kept your word. And yet, you know, he had told them, I've told you what's going to happen, my death, my resurrection, but you don't believe. You don't get it. And after his resurrection, he upbraids them for their slowness to believe, their unbelief in his word. And yet here he says to the Father, they've kept your word. Verse 8, they have believed that you did send me. But just a little while earlier, John 16, verse 31, he says to them almost... Uh, sarcastically, do you now believe? The hour is coming, yes, is now come, that you shall be scattered every man to his own home, and you shall leave me alone, and only the Father will be with me. So then, did they then believe? No, they didn't. But he says to, to the Father, they have believed. He assures the Father, in verse 14 and verse 16, that they are not of the world. Now, the world in John's Gospel is nearly always the Jewish world. And, uh, you, know, you, you can argue with that, but uh, I'll leave that for your you know, reflection. But it seems to me that he, 
was being very positive about them because you can make a case that the disciples were very influenced by Judaism, by the Jewish world. They come running to him saying, Master, don't you realize the Jews were offended by what you said? So many times the words of the, the Pharisees are also to be found on the lips of the disciples. I really need to demonstrate that at more length, but... Um, well, as I often say, take it from me. But uh, anyway, I suggest it to you, as always, in a spirit of, uh, of suggestion, that really for him to say to the Father that they're not really at all anything to do with the Jewish world, well, they were, it seems, very influenced still by Jewish thinking, the thinking of their world. He says in verse 10 that I am glorified in them. Wait a minute, he hadn't yet been glorified. He said in, uh, well it says in 739 of John, he was not yet glorified. He says in John 15 verse 8 that he would be glorified if the disciples bore much fruit. And they hadn't really started doing that. He was glorified in the world through the disciples. And yet, he just predicted in chapter 16 verse 32 that they were going to run away from him they would leave him alone and of course there's a whole sad thing with Peter's denials that was hardly glorifying Jesus and God in front of the world when Peter with curses says I do not know the man and it's almost as if Jesus knew that and yet he says here they have known me Peter said, no, I swear by God Almighty, etc., all these different Jewish oaths, I've never known him. I do not know him. They were, in that sense, a parade example of followers being an embarrassment to their leader, being really a broken reed to Jesus just when he needed them. But to the, to the Father, he's so positive. Now, positivity is not the same as naivety. Jesus wasn't being naive. He had clearly told the disciples where they stood. You know, 1631, do you really now believe? Um, he, there was no question in his own mind that they did not really understand and that they were far away in understanding. Uh, and in uh, belief and in loyalty, their loyalty would collapse. He knew that. And yet, when he talks to the Father, he's so positive about them. He's so positive. Now, that is the kind of mediation which goes on right now. It's not that Jesus turns a blind eye. In his activity in human life, he is calling us on our weaknesses and trying to lead us further. And yet, very clearly, Jesus also understood that before the Father these who had believed in him, who had at least sided with him, had a heart for him, were to be counted as him. When he says that he had, uh, in verse uh, 18, he, he says that, as you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. Well, I think that is a reference to the Great Commission. And I've made a case in my book A World Waiting to be One in, in the section about the Great Commission I, I make the point that although John doesn't record it in the way that Matthew, Mark and Luke do actually the idea of the Great Commission go into all the world and preach the gospel and give people the hope of eternity 
that that actually is there in John, but it's there in more uh, spiritual language. Just like the birth of Jesus is spoken of in John 1 in a very uh, spiritual way, but you don't read about cattle uh, around the manger and well you don't read about cattle around the manger and the others but you know what I mean he, he you don't actually get the record of the, the birth and there not being any room in the hotel and the Joseph and all that you, you don't actually get the physical account of it but you get it in essence but you get it in a different way and so it is with this prophecy uh, really about them going into all the world but he says that he has already done that so he hoped that's all I can say and he imputed to them that they would do what one day he would ask them to do and uh, there's a number of other allusions to the Great Commission uh, which you uh, might be able to pick up now I've uh, alerted you to that possibility um, the idea really in the opening verses that verses 2 and 3 that because Jesus has power over all flesh, therefore he can give eternal life to all those given to him. Well, yeah, this is again the language of the Great Commission in Matthew, where because Jesus has got power and authority over everybody, therefore we should go and tell everybody the gospel, etc. Now he also talks about how the world is going to be converted by the unity of his people this idea of that the world may know this again I submit is part of John's idea of the great preaching commission now this unity which he, he speaks about of course we have uh, very often uh, I suppose uh, lamented that we don't achieve it within uh, our communities and with the w within the wider uh, total body of Christ. And yet here in John 17 the, the implication is very definite that by the extraordinary unity that there would be uh, between the, the, uh, the disciples the world would be converted. See verse 20 and 21, I think you again as an allusion to the Great Commission, I pray for those who shall believe on me through their word uh, of preaching, that they all may be one, as you Father are in me and I in, in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, what are we to make of this? Again, I think it's an illusion of the Great Commission that it's not all about going into uh, bottom lands and standing there giving out tracts or something like that and calling yourself a missionary or standing on a soapbox uh, in a foreign country and uh, coming out with, with the gospel. It is by our unity with each other that we, in that sense, inform the whole world. It is in that sense, in John's, as I say, more spiritual view of the Great Commission, that we are going into this world and witnessing to all people. So quite clearly there should be a unity between God's children which is so startling that it really converts the world. You can see that really in how Christianity started, the way that Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and wealthy free man were all somehow united within the Ecclesia. This was absolutely radical. This was sociologically an impossibility. 
and the whole idea that eldership and leadership in the church was based on spiritual qualifications rather than wealth or whoever owned the house they were living in would be the, the kind of leader of the party kind of thing at the breaking of bread all this stuff almost seems impossible but it could have come true and of course it didn't stay like that You're reading the later New Testament it's quite clear from the letters that it did all start to, to, to mess up that the Jew and Gentile elements did pull apart from each other and the wealthy started to abuse the poor and so on and so forth and yet the idea was the potential was that there should be this unity which would convert the world and Paul has that in mind when he, uh, he talks of the Ephesians Ephesians 3.9 of how the unity between Jew and Gentile was so that all men might see it would make all men see the gospel and you know this really is how God wants it to, to be and yet it's a potential that has been created that in my opinion was not really realized in the first century and is not realized unfortunately today and yet how then can we have this, this unity which is so, so unique well, in one sense, we've got to realize that God is trying to make us one. The unity is achieved by him, uh, as, as well as our efforts. It's in verse 23, reading from the RV. He prays that they would be perfected into one, that the world may know. The idea of being perfected or being made perfect into one. It's like in, in John 10:16 again in the RV, that the believers over time shall become one flock. This was clearly the Lord's intention, that a process of unity would be started by none other than the Father himself. And yet, looking more carefully from verses 19 to 21, where he's talking about this unity, I would argue that you read verse 20 as a parenthesis, that is kind of in brackets. So he's saying, for their sakes I sanctify myself. He's clearly talking about uh, the cross. So that they might be sanctified, and so that, verse 21, that they all may be one. So it's his death for us, his self-sanctification, which leads to that unity. And it is tragic nothing less than tragic that the breaking of bread the memorial of his death and resurrection has become the most divided hour of the week of the body of Christ I can only plead with you no matter what it costs you as it costs me an awful lot to do anything to ensure that the body of Christ is united in the breaking of bread because he died for us and that means that thereby we are convicted of our sin and we are convicted of the depth of his forgiveness and his grace this therefore is the basis for unity this is why uh, when he's actually crucified they take the coat but they say let us not divide it and it's the word uh, schism let's not make a schism in it and that really is intentional in John's record the connection between the death of Jesus and let us therefore not make a schism 
in his coat. Finally, in that connection, at the end of John 17, he says, I have declared unto them your name, and I will declare it. The declaration of the name is another allusion to Moses, having the name declared to him all the way through this. Uh, John 17, there's a whole load of allusions to Moses at his end, which we've not uh, gone through. I mean, Deuteronomy 32, 3 in the Septuagint, I have proclaimed the name of the Lord. This is exactly what Jesus is quoting. Uh, but anyway, I have declared unto them your name, and will declare it. When God declared his name to Moses, he said, I am Yahweh, a God full of grace, forgiveness, mercy, justice, uh, judging sin, forgiving iniquity, etc. His name is essentially his personality and characteristics. So he says to God, I have declared unto them your name, and I will declare it. That second declaration, I would say the first declaration is the declaration in his perfect character in his life, and the second declaration, I believe, was he has in mind the cross. That there, God in his essence, was revealed publicly to this world. And the point has been made that over the head of Jesus, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. If you write that out in Hebrew, the first letter of the four words that would be used comes out in, in English transliteration as YHWH. And that's why when the Jews saw that, they said, take it down. And when they ran off to Pilate, who had been, uh, he knew he'd been railroaded by them and manipulated and he didn't like it, and they say, take it down, he says, what I have written, I have written. And I wondered if that is some form of allusion to I will be who I will be. He's trying to have the last laugh with the Jews. But the point is, they're placarded over the head of the naked and crucified, suffering, covered in blood and spittle body of Jesus. There was, as it were, a sign that said Yahweh. Now, I'm not saying that that, of course, means he was God himself. God himself cannot die, etc. Uh, but all the same, he was the supreme manifestation of the Father in flesh. And the Word was made flesh, and we beheld that. Uh, I wonder if that is almost an illusion by John, or if he has in mind uh, viewing the the cross of Jesus, because of course he was there with, with Mary. The bottom line is, whether what I said about the placard with uh, effectively Yahweh written on it is true or not, the point is that in his life and in his death, the name, the essentialness, the essential uh, characteristic, the essential personality of God himself was supremely declared so that and this is the point, verse 26, so that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You cannot behold him there and perceive anything of what was really happening and not be moved. And what are you moved to? You are moved to love. You are moved to, therefore, unity with your brethren, which has to have love, of course, behind it as its motive for it to be meaningful. Hereby perceive we love, 1 John 3.16, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren.